morning. Thank y'all for letting me come and be here with you. And just to make sure you know that I'm human, the first thing that I did when I just stood up here was look at myself in the monitor. So let you know that I have a streak of vanity. I want to start out in Psalm 108, verses 3 through 5. And I'm going to read them to you. It says this. It says, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love. It is higher than the heavens. And your faithfulness, it reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. And let your glory be all over this earth. Now, this scripture was very near and dear to my husband and I's heart as we prepared to leave for Iraq as missionaries. Now, David and I had both had experience serving as missionaries because we had gone right out of college and served through the International Mission Board through the German program. I had served in Israel and David had served in northern Sudan, and we met by chance at a basketball game. Now, because the IMB doesn't allow the whole dating thing, plus it's hard to meet for a date when you're in two different country, countries and two different continents at time. It's hard to meet for a dinner and a movie in that situation. So we emailed a lot. And during those emails, uh, we discovered that uh, we really liked each other. And so when we finished up our journeyman program uh, two years there, we went back to Texas and started seminary at Southwestern, Univer uh, yeah, Southwestern Seminary. And uh, so uh, we began dating dated for about three months, were engaged and married in the summer of 2002. We spent our first anniversary in the summer of 2003 in the northern hills of Iraq on a short-term mission trip shortly after the liberation in Baghdad. And we went in there to do relief and development work. We had a very successful trip. David and I at that point were very homesick for the Middle East. We longed to go back and we knew that that was the Lord's calling on our life was that he wanted us to go and be uh, missionaries in the Middle East. And so when we had the opportunity, even though it be for two weeks, we jumped at the chance. And so we went, we had a very successful time, very successful trip. We got back home and got back to our lives. And it was um, one of those situations where, now you'll hear people that they've gone into different countries and and it, you know, it was this awe-inspiring time. Now, yes, the Lord was faithful on this trip, but for both of us, um, it was just kind of a been there, done that, got the t-shirt kind of moment. Now, I know that's not what you want to hear a missionary say about a mission trip, and I'm sure some professors probably cringed at that. But I want to say this in the fact that it was not one of those times where the heavens parted and the angels descended and the hallelujah chorus went in as we went into Iraq. It was not one of those moments we were being faithful to the Lord in that moment. And he would later use those next few weeks to call us to Iraq. We just never anticipated that day, that moment. And so uh, as we got back to our lives, the Lord began to speak to us, to David and I in our prayer time, that we needed um, to be prepared to leave seminary a little sooner than we anticipated. And uh, that was no heartbreak for either one of us because both of us were dying to get back to the Middle East. And so um, when the IMB called and requested us to go and be a part of the team there, uh, we fasted and we prayed over that decision. And the Lord very clearly told us through scripture and prayer to go and give what we had to the people of Iraq. And so we um, gave that decision to the Lord and we said yes. And let me tell you something. We knew that there was nothing in us that it can accomplish that which we hope to see accomplished. Which is what I read to you in Psalm 108. That the Iraqis would know the love of God. 
that they would come to experience his faithfulness and that as they come to know his love and his faithfulness that they would come to know him and then they would therefore glorify him all over Iraq and on into the other parts of the Middle East. That was our heart's desire for the Iraqis. That was why we went. We, we, we knew that there was no amount of preparations, there were no amount of planning, there was no amount of strategy that would accomplish that which we hoped to see. But we knew that God was calling us. And we knew that we had two decisions we could make. We could be obedient or we could be disobedient. That was our two choices. And we desired to seek God in every aspect of our life. And we desired to be obedient. And as scripture tells us, faithful is he who calls you and it is he who will bring it to pass. We knew that he was calling in us and that our abilities rested in God's. And so we went and we went to do relief and development work. And uh, we were able to, to uh, do a lot of work in a short amount of time because David and I had experience, a previous experience in the Middle East. And so we already had a good grasp of the language, had a good grasp of the culture. And so whereas a lot of missionaries, when they first arrive into country, they spend the first year kind of just getting that down and not really able to get in a whole lot of ministry in. But because we had that, we were able to go in, get our hands dirty uh, almost immediately upon our arrival. And so we were able to see and experience much of Iraq. And um, on March 15, 2004, we had news that had heard from the American Army that there was a uh, small community of displaced peoples, meaning that they had lived in one area and been kicked out of the other because if you've noticed, if you paid attention to the, uh, what's going on in Iraq or what has gone on in Iraq, there's a little bit of tribal issues going on. It's been there since centuries, centuries before. And so when Saddam got kicked out, um, some of the people went back to claim lands that he had taken over. And so uh, that left other people without homes. Well, this particular group had made up residency, taken residency in a rundown factory, and there was no reliable resource of water there. And so Larry and Jean Elliott, Karen Watson, myself, and David all went out to, uh, to go help them with this situation. In fact, on that day, we had to stop off at the U.S. Army headquarters, get GPS coordinates to get out there because it wasn't like we could go down Main Street, take a ride on second. This place was out in the middle of the desert. We, we made our own roads to get out there. And so uh, when we arrived, it was about midday. We got there knowing that most of the working men um, would be out at work. Um, that the ladies would be there and that the elders of the community would be there. Knowing that it was mostly women at the time, all three of us ladies piled out of the truck. And as soon as we did, they opened up the doors of the factory and welcomed us into their home. And as they were walking us into um, their, it was the nicest room of this home because part of the building was in rubble from, from just years of neglect. And, and um, they took us to the room that acted as their living room during the day and their bedroom at night. And as I was walking, one of the ladies, she grabs my shoulder and she says, my elbow, and she says, we need water. We desperately need water. And she began to explain how they had had uh, two containers, which we saw as we drove up, two big containers that a truck would come up and pour water into this, these two containers. And this was for them to live off of, for their shower, their food, their water, just all you think of. Like, we used the water 
all throughout the day. These containers were supposed to be enough for this whole community. And uh, they had no word as to when this water truck was going to be arriving. And they hadn't seen it in several weeks. And so therefore one sat empty and the other only had a few inches of water left remaining. They were growing very anxious because as you hear, it gets very hot out in the desert. And so those hot summer days were quickly arriving and they were very anxious about how they would survive the hot summer months. And so we said, yes, we had heard about that. That's exactly why we have come to help you with that. And about that time, Larry and David were outside meeting with the elders of the community. And all of us ladies began to sit down and, and uh, one of the ladies left and began to prepare a traditional hot sweet tea that the Iraqis drink. And they began to uh, introduce one another and very quickly uh, the conversation fell into uh, something that would probably be the same if you were to invite me over to your house. You know, where did you grow up? Do you have family? Do you have kids? Are your mom and dad, are they well? Uh, just that whole conversation was very much the same as, as uh, just any other conversation in any other living room in the world. And so we uh, laughed, we had a great time. And as we finished up our um, meeting and, and um, got back into the truck, we, uh, all five of us were absolutely ecstatic about what had happened that day. Because you see, these people had opened up their doors to us. They'd opened up their lives to us. And not only, Larry had already figured out how he can get clean, reliable resource of water to them, but that we were also not only excited about being able to provide such a basic and yet vital need such as water, but that we would also be able to go back and build on those relationships that had started on that day. That we would be able to go back and pour our lives into theirs so that eventually we would hopefully be able to show and live out Christ among them and also be able to explain to them so that one day we'd be able to offer them true and living water as Christ describes himself in Scripture. But you see, that would never happen for us on that day because as we traveled back home in our truck, we began, uh, went through the town of Mosul. And Mosul was a place where we had been through numerous times. Um, we'd had meetings there. We'd gone to restaurants and all kinds of stuff. It was not unusual for us to be in or through that town. And so um, as we uh, went through, we came upon a very busy part of the town. There were shops on both sides. People were out talking and, and taking care of business. And, and as... Um, uh, we traveled in our truck. Some men came up around us and began shooting with automatic weapons. And uh, my three friends, Larry and Jean Elliott and Karen Watson, went home to be with the Lord on that day. But David and I were able to get to safety with the help of Iraqis that came out of hiding. And I don't care how many times I tell this story, it will never cease to amaze me that anybody came to help. Because you see, they did exactly what any one of us would do if we heard gunshots at this moment. We would duck and we would hide. And when you see, when that once busy street, when those terrorists finished shooting and they drove off, that once busy street was like a ghost town. And yet these men came out of hiding, giving up their place of safety, not knowing, none of us knew if these terrorists were going to make a U-turn and come back. And yet they gave up that place of hiding. And they came and helped complete strangers. And so David was able to get up out of the truck and began to kind of help the situation and figure out where we were going to go to get medical help and everything. And pretty soon they decided we needed to get into another vehicle to get to medical help. And so um, then one of the Iraqis opened up the back door of the cab of the truck and looked at me like, you know, come on out. And, and I had to explain to him, I cannot move a thing. Everything in me is broken. And in fact, in order to just speak to him, I felt like I was screaming, but a whisper was coming out. 
And uh, so he said, okay, and a couple of them reached in and they pulled me out of the truck. And uh, again, we'll miss it in American mindsets, the fact that these men had to overcome so much cultural boundaries to reach in and pull out a woman because you see in this culture, Muslim men do not touch women. They do not touch women. They certainly don't touch women who are bloodied from head to toe. But these men, they overcame that and they reached in and they pulled me out. And when they did, they had to set me on the side of the road for just a moment. And then they did. I was dressed very traditionally with the long skirts and the long sleeve shirt and dress and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and when that, they set me down, the hem of my skirt came up over my ankles. Now again, we'll miss it in our American mindset. In the Arab world, for a woman to show her ankle is the most absolute immodest thing that you could possibly do and show. And so I didn't notice at the time because my mind obviously was occupied with other things. And, uh, but one of the men, he saw what had happened. He saw that there was absolutely nothing that I could do because both one arm was broke and the other was just severely beaten up. And there was nothing that I could do. And so he reached down and he pulled the hem of my skirt over my ankles, maintaining my modesty and showing such huge amount of respect and compassion. And I want to share just a little glimpse of this moment with you. I share this with you so that you could see the heart of the Iraqi people. Because this is not being displayed to you on the news. I show this to you also so that you could see the sovereignty of God in the midst of chaos. Do you see it? You see, God of all creation was sovereign at that moment because, you see, he sent men of compassion, men he knew that could be brave enough and compassionate enough to give up their place of safety, overcome cultural boundaries, reach in, pull out a hurting and dying woman, and then put her down. And when she couldn't maintain her modesty, they did it for me. Believe me, I have spent time and weeks and days in Muslim homes as their daughter. They consider me their daughter. And let me tell you, I have never in all my experiences ever seen a father do something for their own daughter in that way. And especially a husband for his own wife, a son for his own mother. I've never seen that happen before. And yet here out in the middle of everybody it happened that is my God in the midst of absolute chaos that is my God being sovereign in the midst of my absolute worst nightmare and so we went on and we uh, eventually were taken up by the American army they caught up with us and they helicoptered us to their um, local uh, unit not too far outside of town and and um, when they got us there they rushed us into their little hospital unit and they uh, began assessing us, uh, our, our injuries and stuff. David was on one side of the tent and I was on the other. And I could hear David. He was talking to the doctors and the soldiers, telling them about what, all that had happened. And, and, uh, and the doctors were looking over all my injuries. And they looked at me and said, we've got to get you into surgery now. Because you see, I was quickly, I was, I was dying. I was bleeding to death. And uh, just any more longer, they were going to lose me. And so they rushed me into surgery. And um, they worked on me for about 10 hours, just long enough to get my body stabilized. They didn't do any major reconstruction at that time. They just got my body stabilized, gave me more blood transfusions, lots of antibiotics, and just cleaned up all the many wounds. They counted over 22 bullets that had struck my body. That's just the bullets. That doesn't count the shrapnel that had pelted my body from head to toe. You name it, it was broken. You name it, it was hit. Um, 
a broken right arm, almost lost my left arm, shattered my left leg, huge injuries to my right leg, lost three fingers, in case you're wondering, did she lose those fingers in the attack? Yes, I did. And um, it's an absolute miracle. I don't have enough time to tell you just medically the absolute miracle that one, I survived, because even the doctors, as they called my parents in the state who had heard about the attack, as they called them to give updates, they would even say, let me just tell you, as they prepared my parents for the worst, when we see soldiers come in on a daily basis with injuries like hers, they don't make it. We just want to prepare you for that. And then hours later, they called back and it's like, they said, it's like a, she had a flat jacket on. It's like the hand of God was on her. Because you see, as they later would discover, I had a bullet travel through the right side of my body and exit through the left side of my body. Now, any of you medical people, you probably know that that's where all your vital organs are. And yet God, in His sovereignty, kept me alive. And so uh, they finished up those 10 hours of surgery, and they decided to go ahead and keep me in a medically induced coma as I would travel from Iraq and then eventually back to Dallas, Texas, where I'm from and where my family's from. And so it would be eight days later before I would wake up, and as soon as I began waking up and cognizant enough of where I was, I began asking for David. Where is he? Can he come in? Because you, you see, I very much expected for him to be okay. And so my family came in, and it was my father that had to tell me that my husband had passed away from his injuries the following day after the attack. And my world spun, ladies and gentlemen. There in that hospital, I was dealing with grief and pain and sorrow at depths I never dreamed I would ever have to face. Just as the psalmist writes, he says, I am in the valley of the shadow of death. I was in my valley of the shadow of death. But what does the psalmist say right after he says that? You'll know this one. He says, but I do not fear for you are with me. Thy rod and your staff, they comfort me. Let me tell you something, that is exactly where I found my God. He was with me. He was comforting me, and yes, he was protecting me. And I went through, I knew that there was no way that my family and my friends, as awesome as they are, that they would ever be able to carry me through all that I was going to have to deal with. You see, I lost three friends precious co-workers. I lost my husband and my best friend. And then I'm dealing with the fact that somebody just tried to take my life. And then I'm dealing with the fact that I have so many physical injuries that I'm going to have to overcome all of that. Meanwhile, grieving over the loss of all these friends and my dear husband. So I knew I was going to have a lot to go through. And so I went through and I started searching through God's word. And I prayed. I said, God, I want you to show me what you've written in your word that says that you're going to help me overcome this. And I went through and I found promises that said he is the God of all uh, grace and comfort. And he will comfort us in our affliction. It says that he is close to the brokenhearted. And in fact, he will bind up our wounds. And I had one or two of those. And so all through this, God has been faithful. God has been so faithful. And I've been able to go through and, and um, have a new ministry now where the Lord is using this testimony and going through and sharing with other believers all that God has shared with me in his word. 
and I get to meet so many people, and you bet I get one or two questions, as I'm sure one or two of you probably have some you'd love to throw at me. But one of the most common questions that I get is this, why would you go to a place like that? How could you go to a place like that? And I get this question, you would expect it outside of the church, but I get it inside the church probably even more so. Why and how could we go to a place like that? And that answer lies in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says this. It says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. Christ's love compels us to go because we are convinced of all that he has done in our lives. And we can no longer live to ourselves, but we must live for Christ, of whom we are convinced of all that he has done. And he lived and he died and he was raised again for our sins. I'm convinced of it. That's why David and I left. Because we were compelled of all that he had done in our lives. All that we experienced of Christ. And we could no longer keep it to ourselves. We were compelled to go to a place like that. By the love of Christ. And then the second part of that answer is in Romans 5.5. says this. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Do you understand the impact of this scripture in our lives? That as a believer of Jesus Christ, the love of God is in you, has been poured out into your heart through the Holy Spirit. Do you get the impact of that? Let's focus for just a a brief moment on the love of God in our lives, on your own journey. All that God has brought you through, all those victories that he has brought you through. You think of those times for just a moment. Maybe you're at a place where I was, because I will not lie to you. I will not be Pollyanna about it. I had some dark, dark days after I got home from the hospital. Dark days. Days where all I wanted to do was lie in the fetal position with the cover over my head and cry. That's all I wanted to do. And on those days, in order for me to kind of rub two sticks together and get two thoughts together, I had to get back to the basics of what I know that I know that I know. So let's get back to the basics in case maybe you're having one of those days or you're going through one of those times where you just got to get back to the basics of what you know that you know that you know. Let's look at God's love and the fact of all the story that he has written into humanity. The fact that he created us knowing that we were going to botch that up, mess that up, and sin. Break off the relationship that he had with us because of the sin in our lives. And so we started offering sacrifice after sacrifice and good intention after good intention, trying to make that way in order to have that right relationship with God. But no amount of sacrifice, no amount of right uh, thoughts and good intentions would ever fill the void between God and man. And God in his love saw the need and sent his son. And it's that, ladies and gentlemen, is that love that has been poured out into your hearts through the Holy Spirit. But we don't stop there because you see his son out of, out of love 
The created became as the created, and he took on the form of flesh, and he dwelt among us and walked a pure and blameless life, only to die a murderer's death for our sins and our shame. It's that love, ladies and gentlemen, that has been poured out into your hearts through the Holy Spirit. But we don't stop there because it is also the love of God that raised his son, allowing us to have a right relationship with him. It is that love that has been poured out into your hearts through the Holy Spirit as a believer of Jesus Christ. You know what? We're left without excuses. We are left without excuses. Whether or not you think that you're called to go into a foreign country or whether or not you're supposed to be working at Walmart the rest of your life, I don't care. What you are called to be is intentional with the life that God has given you intentional with the life that God has given you. You are called to be compelled to go into this dark and dying world because you are convinced of all that Christ has done in your life. You are called to go out and be intentional with the life that he has given you, pouring out the love that God has so graciously, graciously poured into your heart and poured into others that he has you around because he's an intentional God and he will plant you where he wants you, not so that you can have a great job and do all this and that and have a great name and da-da-da-da-da-da. No, it all goes back to him so that he can be glorified to the uttermost parts of this world, so that he can be glorified. That's why we went. We went because we were compelled. We went because the love of God poured out in our hearts would not allow us to do anything else. To do so would be disobedient. To do so would be living a lie of what we say we truly believe in. We have enough of that going on in this world. And we went because we knew that we had something and we could no longer hold it on to ourselves. And I pray that, that God would reveal his will to you in your life and that no matter where it is that you end up in this world, that you would also live out your life in a different way, that you would live out your life because you've been compelled by the love of Christ, that you would no longer live for yourselves, but you would live for him because he has so graciously poured out the love of God into your hearts through the Holy Spirit. And you can no longer keep that to yourselves. I want to close with a quote from my husband. And um, it's an email, part of an email he wrote to me in October of 2000 when we were both journeymen. As I mentioned, uh, we couldn't date, so we emailed. And this is part of it. It says this. It says, I love telling people about the best thing in my life, and I don't have any hesitations in sharing it. Now, I don't understand everything, and I certainly have plenty of questions, but I'm confident that he knows all, and he has all the answers. Until we meet and all is revealed, I will keep running the race and keep pressing on to the goal relying fully on a strength which so powerfully works in me, being confident that he will be faithful to complete the work that he has begun in me. I love telling people about the best thing in my life. I don't have any hesitations in sharing it. I pray that that would be each and every one of your hearts. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to come and, and focus on you for this 
this morning, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would speak into every one of these students' lives, into their hearts, Father, that you would shake them up, Father, that you would give them the courage, that you would show them where they need to be intentional with their life right now, Father. Father, I pray that you would encourage them, Father, that you would refresh them, Father, with your word. Father God, I pray that this indeed would be a generation where um, they're not all about talk, Father, that they would truly live out the love of God wherever they are at in this world. Not for their glory, but for yours. Father God, we thank you for the grace that you have poured into our lives, Father. Let us never grow so cold and so um, arrogant to think that we have gotten to know you because of who we are. Father, we understand and recognize that it is only by the grace and the love of God that we even can whisper a name to you, Father. We thank you that you know us by name. Lord God, I pray that you would just continue to be with these students and that you would continue to reveal yourself to them. We thank you that you are a God who makes himself known to us. We thank you that we can know that through the love of Christ, through all that you did on the cross, and it is in your Son's name and the Holy name of Jesus that we ask these things. Amen.